Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. Today's episode will be a discussion of the book The Chalice and the Blade by Rianne Eisler. This book was published in 1987, and along with other female archaeologists working at the time, Eisler proposed theories about humans' prehistoric past that caused quite a stir in the field of archaeology and gave rise to a spiritual goddess movement within feminism in the 1980s and 90s. But before we dive into our text, I'm excited to introduce my first reading partner, Malia Morris. Hi, Malia. Hi, Amy. Thank you so much for being here today. We're, I'm so excited to have this discussion with you. What interested you in doing this project? You know, I think something that we've discussed before, which is that we've had this immense privilege of being educated women and how as educated women, this is a lot of information that I have never interacted with before. I've heard bits and pieces, especially from my degree uh, in sociology. But when it comes to the particulars, mm -hmm you know, my knowledge is very scant. So I, for me, I conceptualize the idea of learning about these primary texts as a way to sort of arm myself with information so that when I'm confronted with situations where I'm discussing it or when I'm confronting patriarchy, that I'm just better prepared to understand the process of how things have developed and how to move forward. Thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited to discuss um, this text with you and launch our project together. Um, so with that, let's dive into the book. And if you don't mind, um, I'd love it, Malia, if you could give us some background on Rianne Eisler and some of the main points that we'll be discussing in this book, The Chalice and the Blade. Rianne Eisler is a social system scientist, cultural historian, and attorney whose research, writing, and speaking transformed the lives of people worldwide. She lived through the Nazi occupation of Austria when she was a child, and she writes the following about that experience. I was born in Vienna, and my parents and I lived there until Austria was annexed by Nazi Germany. On Kristallnacht, so-called because of the glass shattered in Jewish homes, synagogues and businesses. A gang of Gestapo men broke into our home and dragged my father off. That was terrifying. But that night I also witnessed something I carried with me for the rest of my life. My mother stood up to those men. Rianne fled from the Nazis of her, with her parents to Cuba as a small child and later immigrated to the United States. She obtained degrees in sociology and law from UCLA and her lifelong questions about how and why human beings are so brutal to each other led to her work in anthropology. Eisler taught pioneering classes on women and the law at UCLA, and she taught in the Graduate Transformative Leadership Program at the California Institute of Integral Studies and the Anthropology Department at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, as well as online through the Center of Partnership Studies and the Omega Institute. She is editor-in-chief of the Interdisciplinary Journal of Partnership Studies at the University of Minnesota and president of the Center of Partnership Studies dedicated to research and education on the partnership model introduced by her research. This book is full of information, but we chose to highlight three points. Number one, in multiple locations at various times, there's archaeological evidence of peaceful, woman-centered cultures. Eisler calls these societies partnership cultures. Number two, every one of these societies was eventually overtaken by invaders that brought aggression and the institution of social hierarchies. Eisler calls these societies dominator cultures. And number three, 
Eisler points out the critical need to involve women in interpreting data. So the first point that we want to highlight today is Rihanna Eisler's emphasis on the partnership cultures. And you'll notice that in introducing this first point, Malia said woman-centered cultures, but she didn't say matriarchies. Um, So definition-wise, patriarchy technically means father rule. So it comes from pater in Latin or like padre in Spanish. And then archy, a ruling structure, like a monarchy means the rule of one person. So in practice, this father rule expands to mean males ruling over females in general. And the dictionary defines patriarchy as a system of society or government in which men hold the power and women are largely excluded from it. So a matriarchy, in contrast, would mean mother rule and would be implemented as a system in which women hold the power and men are largely excluded from the power structure. So for me, one of the biggest takeaways that really made me stop in my tracks has been reading that Eisler and actually also some of the other historians that we've read, or actually all of the the historians that we've researched so far, have said that there is no evidence anywhere at any time of a matriarchy existing on this planet in the way that patriarchy has existed. So you might see a culture that's matrilocal, So that would be obviously the mother and then local is the place. So that might mean that when a man and a woman get married, they go and live with the bride's family. And so you trace the family's location and home, their ancestral home through the women, which is really great for women. And an example that Eisler uses in um, The Chalice and the Blade is in the Neolithic city of Katal Hayuk. Neolithic, of course, means new stone. So this is the Stone Age. This was in 7,500 BCE, one of the most ancient um, civilizations that you'll find um, on Earth. Um, in Katal Hayuk, which is in modern-day Turkey, you find that a woman's sleeping platform is always found in the same place in a dwelling. But the men's sleeping places um, change around. And so that indicates matrilocality, locality, that the woman stays. And then if a girl gets married, a woman gets married, the husband comes and lives with them. So that's matrilocality. locality. But it's not matriarchy um, where the women are ruling. You might also see another culture that's matrilineal which means that you would be tracing your um, ancestry through your mother, like the Jewish tradition, or you inherit your mother's name. And there are a handful of cultures all over the world in different times that have been matrilineal. That's not a matriarchy. Um, You might see a culture, and this is where we're going to focus and where Eisler focuses, cultures that are matrifocal, which obviously means that they're focused more on women. Um, That means at least in the record that that they're interpreting in these archaeological digs, that they're finding art that feature women and they depict goddesses and even priestesses. You may even have a family yourself that you feel like is more matrifocal, where maybe you have a really strong grandmother and maybe the interests of your family kind of follow the interests of the daughters. But again, that's not matriarchal because the women are not ruling over the men. Um, so I thought that was a really interesting point. Yes, I also thought that was really interesting. It sort of challenges the beliefs that we have of certain families or societies being matriarchal. And I I wonder how that translates to other cultures as well, especially as we see like this move towards, you know, some egalitarianism. It's just really interesting. I've I never even conceptualized that there are other ways to interpret female centric families that does not include matriarchy. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a a mixed feeling that there's never been a matriarchy. 
there have been a bunch of cultures, though, that that exhibit um, features of matcha locality, matcha linearity, and um, the matcha focal emphasis, I guess. Um, and Rianne Eisler calls these the cultures of the chalice. So a chalice, of course, is a cup or a vessel. And that refers to female anatomy, of course, like the, a woman is a chalice and the man is the blade, right? But Eisler goes beyond that, too, and says that uh, not only does it kind of refer to female anatomy, but it's actually, if you think about a chalice being a cup that you would drink from or that you would offer to someone else to nourish them and to hydrate them, that these... Um, partnership societies, these chalice societies are about nurturing others, nourishing others and looking out for others. They're about peace and partnership, not about domination. One society that she mentions that I wanted to highlight um, is the Minoan civilization. The Minoans thrived, whereas Katal Hayuk was like 7,500 BCE, the Minoans are way much, much later from about 2000 BCE to about 1400 BCE. So just for a point of reference, that's during the Middle Kingdom in Egypt, like a few hundred years after the pyramids were built. Okay. It's also late enough in history that they did have a written record, but just infuriatingly, no one has been able to crack the code yet. Yes. That is so frustrating. I so know. we don't have like a Rosetta Stone or anything for that. Nope. No, there's a few different lines. They call them linear A, linear B. There might be a third that I'm forgetting the name of, but they have um, a couple of different, I don't know if they're dialects or just written styles of writing, but there's all this information about a possibly woman-centered egalitarian society and they wrote a record and we found it and no one can read it. Anyway, so to turn to Eisler to open her book and see some of the descriptions um, to kind of bring to life what these archaeologists were digging up, there's this incredibly sophisticated palace and this amazing surrounding city, and they noticed some striking features. And I'm going to actually just read on page 31 one of her descriptions. So well into the Bronze Age, this is Eisler talking, when goddesses in other places like Egypt and Babylon were being subsumed by male gods... The goddess reigned supreme on Crete. It is the goddess who rides her griffin-drawn chariot to bear a dead man to his new life. And it is the priestesses of the goddess, not the priests, who play the central role in the ritual depicted on the frescoes. It is they who lead the procession and who extend their hands to touch the altar. I think that's something that's really powerful to women, especially in you know, Western religions where women don't always have access to these same roles. So knowing that we have these ancient goddesses, which I just love that term goddess, there's just mm -hmm. like so much inherent power and in like priestesses and goddesses. It's such like a powerful term that we have these women that were doing these really essential, vital parts of these really important rituals that we still do today. I mean, we still have death rituals mm -hmm. and these, these come from these ancestors, these come from this, you know, line of ritualized moments in time that are important. Yeah, that's really true. Another um, really vivid and important image besides the goddess and priestess are goddesses that are holding up snakes. In many prehistoric cultures, that the snake is the sign of the goddess when the Bible was being authored and they were writing down these oral traditions that had been passed down and passed down for hundreds of years, 
the authors chose to depict Satan as a snake. There's a school of thought that sees that as a deliberate choice because the, you know, the surrounding areas were really, really into goddess worship. And they knew that snakes were a sign of the goddess. And so they represented the snake as Satan, as something evil, Um, which is, it just kind of broke my heart. And really, I thought about that for days afterwards. But it was interesting, too, that the symbol pops up elsewhere in the Bible, that where it has retained its original meaning, where um, it's a healing symbol, like when Moses holds up the the serpent on the staff to heal Israel when they've been bitten by the serpents, and he holds the staff up with the serpent. And that lives on today as the symbol for the practice of medicine. So it still retains that power. My question to you is, at some point, do we see that symbol become, you know, a part of a patriarchal tradition? Is that what we're seeing here? Like, I'd never even thought about that. Is that something that we're seeing where it's like used in one way as a symbol to tempt Eve and then another being sort of, I don't know, taking that snake and making it like fortifying it and like we will fortify you to our use. I don't know. I'm thinking out loud, but I'd never even conceptualized that at the same time we're using the snake as a way to tempt and also as a symbol of power Mm -hmm. later on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My guess, and maybe this is just me kind of remembering vaguely this lecture is that there, I, I believe there was a school of thought that thought that it was deliberate that they cast Satan or the devil or whatever, the tempter as a snake on purpose. And that the snake in the healing manifestation was just like, we kind of forgot to edit that out. You know what I mean? Uh, Like they didn't go to, but yeah, that is a really powerful image. And it's so cool to see all of those. I mean, it's powerful to see a woman, a bare breasted woman, both arms above her head, and she is double fisting venomous serpents. I mean, there isn't really a more powerful image than that. And there are lots and lots of those figurines that were unearthed um, uh, on Crete. Just the, you know, at the last part, I guess, of this point of the partnership um, cultures that I'll share quickly is just that Eisler points out the houses were just about all the same size. You couldn't pick out who was rich and who was poor. You couldn't pick out a palace or a hovel. And um, Eisler points out that the standard of living, even of the peasants, seems to have been really high, and none of the homes suggest poor living conditions. And that is a really important point in understanding the partnership model, I think, that if it's a society based on the chalice and on partnership, then it's oriented toward giving and nourishing all the members of society and on appreciating nature and just having kind of a joy de vivre um, that you don't see in dominator models. So were there any other things that struck you in this section, Malia? I think as we're just wrapping it up, it it keeps coming back to me that in this model, we don't see one part of the society that's really out of sync with each other. We see just the synchronicity to really achieve all of these technological advances, because something that we'll talk about later is that that's, that's often used as an argument against societies that maybe were more matriarchal or you know, female focus that we need sort of this bum rushing in using weaponry to accomplish it. And what we're seeing is for thousands of years, tens of thousands of years, women were doing this with men hand in hand. Mm -hmm. Just to know that it's a possibility. 
yeah. is a beautiful thing to hold hope for. In fact, isn't that the tagline of her book, Our Past, Our Future? I think right below the title. But it's a possible model. Yep. Yeah, which is I think is the best way to summarize that whole section is that if you were wondering, yes, there have been periods of time where men and women work together, where patriarchy was not the dominant model. Yep. Which is just, it's mind-blowing. It is. Right? Yep. So as we move into the second section of our topics, which is going to be discussing the dominator model, which we've sort of alluded to, but we're going to discuss a little bit more illustrating what that means. So around 5000 BCE, we start to see shifts, uh, disruption in the old Neolithic cultures, which is the Stone Age in the Near East. So in the book, they talk about Kurgan waves of Indo-European invaders that come to Mesopotamia and that this happened over time. We see pockets of time happening where you have a thousand years here and then maybe a couple more thousand years. So this wasn't just one sudden snap and it happened. It was sort of a gradual trickle down where things slowly start to switch over time. So within this, you see all of these different societies through Mesopotamia be impacted by the shift. So what all of these invasions had in common is that they had a dominator model of social organization. So at its core of the invaders system, it's the placing of higher value on the power that takes rather than that that gives life, which again, harkens to something that Amy was talking about earlier, right? With the chalice model, this idea of life giving versus life taking. So part of this dominator model are two things that I found personally interesting. One is the advent or the emergence of what we see as weaponry. And we also see the emergence of weapons in these Indo-European warrior gods. We start seeing mm. depictions of, you know, uh, spears and axes with long shafts. So we start seeing this emergence happening in these religious ideas. So there we transform that into the idea, too, of this domination model. We also get the emergence of slavery. So this is coming from the book. Weapons obviously represented the gods' functions of powers and were worshipped as representations of the gods themselves. The sacredness of the weapon is well evidenced in the Indo-European religions. No previous engravings or weapons, images of weapon-carrying divinities are known in the Neolithic Alpine religion. Now, the other thing that's really interesting during this time as we see this shift is that we start seeing that different burial practices, right? Yes. So Amy talks about earlier that we have these goddesses that are ushering men into afterlife. And, and we see this just really beautiful imagery. And what we start to see is how exceptionally tall or large boned male skeletal skeletons that are buried with sacrificial women. Mm -hmm. We start seeing wives and concubines and slaves of men who died, which this directly contrast to what we see in Crete, correct? Mm -hmm. It see... does. In fact, I was just going to say that I didn't mention before that that was another bit of archaeological evidence that Eisler cites for a really quite democratic and um, non-hierarchical society is that not only did they have similarly sized dwellings, but that their burial sites were all pretty similar. People mm -hmm. were just buried without a big difference in wealth 
in their mm-hmm. tombs and certainly not buried with other human beings that were sacrificed <laughs> at the time of their death. So anyway, yes, that's, I'm remembering the same thing as you from the book. Yeah, Molly. Okay, good. So I'm not, I'm not completely misremembering. <laughs> we're doing some justice to Rian Eisler here. Okay. So you just see these, these changes. And then later what we see in the archaeological model is as historians are sifting through this information and finding it, what they're doing is they're coming to the hypothesis that, you know, this female-centric art of, of bare-breasted women is erotic. They're framing mm-hmm. these things as being so different to what now we understand as, as them representing. They see, you know, original Neolithic art that, that they interpret as being axes or or harpoons. And what we actually think now based on the records is that probably indicated plant life. So we just see this kind of entirely different structural worldview that everything that existed before was dominated by this male centric perception. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And that really indicates to us that the sort of history that we're working off of is entirely framed through the concept of male historians mm-hmm. and male archaeologists and male writers, and that it took thousands and hundreds of years later for people to finally look at this and say, is there another way to interpret this information? Yeah. This is maybe not exactly on topic with where you were going, Malia, but I'm going to read just a a teensy bit, a little excerpt. It says, it is a widespread assumption that however bloody things may have been since the days of the Sumerians and Assyrians, this was just the unfortunate prerequisite for technological and cultural advance. Quote, if the savages who existed prior to our earliest civilizations were peaceable, it is reasoned they would naturally, lacking the proper motivation, have produced little of any lasting value. For the spur of war has been necessary to bring on all technological and cultural advance. However, the data we are now examining tell us the same things we are learning from the archaeological excavations. This is that one of the best kept historical secrets is that practically all the material and social technologies fundamental to civilization were developed before the imposition of a dominator society. And she goes on to say that, like, how important it is to know that, that there we would have perhaps there's there's a choose your own adventure path where we could have taken the partnership path and we could have developed all of the, maybe, maybe it would have, I mean, certainly it would have developed differently, but we would not be without technology. We would not be without sophisticated art forms, but maybe what we could have avoided is slavery. Maybe what we could have avoided is sexual exploitation. If we had, Mm, if we, if subjugation, exactly. Subjugation of all different human beings over the course of time, and maybe even animal abuse. I mean, it just what the partnership model would have been a completely different trajectory. And so she talks about how um, emotionally important it is for women to know that we have that in our past, but also how scientifically important it is to know that that is a fact, that there is hard evidence, that there are artifacts, there are buildings you can look at. It's just powerful to know that all of those things are possible with a, with a partnership model. It does not require the domination and subjugation of other people. Absolutely. Because that's, that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about men being absent from this. We're talking about a model where 
we are more equal. Because what we see in this dominator model, what she talks about in the book is how everywhere men with the greatest power to destroy the physically strongest, most insensitive, most brutal, those are the ones who rise to the top. Mm -hmm. So we see this social structure become more hierarchic and authoritarian. And women who are as a group are physically smaller and weaker than men are most closely identified with the old view of power symbolized by the life-giving and sustaining chalice are now reduced to the status that they are to hold hereafter, male-controlled technologies of production and reproduction, right? And even we, we talked about this a little bit before, is that the goddess herself gradually becomes the wife or the consort of these male deities. So yeah. you see that later on, as these Greco-Roman mythologies pop up, they take these ancient goddesses, these awesome bare-breasted, bull-riding goddesses, <laughs> and they make them consorts. Yeah. And yep. so it was not just that we saw in physical society. It embedded the actual divinity of their world. Mm -hmm. And just how, you know, in some ways it makes you grateful that it happened over thousands of years and not gradually, or, I mean, not quickly, because had mm -hmm. it happened quickly, you cannot imagine the catastrophic emotional effect that that would have had on those people. So let's move on to the final point, which is something that we've already began to discuss and summarize because these points really do dovetail into each other. But this is when only men are looking at the data, we're only going to get men's interpretations. And I think this is such an important part to end on because it's not suggesting that men don't have an important role in this. It's simply to say that with any organization, I mean, if you want to compare it to like a board today or a company, if you only have women, if you only have men, there may be parts that we're missing, right? We're not getting a full bodied view. So mm -hmm. if we include people and just even beyond the scope of men and women, if we're including people of color, if we're, you know, including the LGBT women, community. if we're using LGBTQ community, right? Like we're, yeah. we're including this wider net of people, we're going to get a more balanced, applicable view of That's how right. we should approach problems that we confront. And so what we see from the archaeological perspective is we see just the entire male-centric view of, of everything being eroticized when it comes to these female goddesses. We see the emergence of thinking of, you know, artwork as being inherently weaponry when we know for a for archaeological purposes that that doesn't even show up for thousands of years later. And it, it just it's just to say that there's more voices here that we're leaving untapped. A lot of times when I read this book, I, I had to put it down and just process because it's so different from everything that you you grow up with. You think mm -hmm. of yourself like, what is it like the, the analogy of like the water and the tea bag? Like you're just steeped in it. We're steeped yeah. in this and we unconsciously hold these perceptions of why things are the way they are. And, you know, it's interesting. I think a really common critique from people is that like, well, it's natural, like men would be in charge because they're strongest. And, and what we're saying is that's not actually the case. Mm -hmm. So we're not negating that men were strong and that they probably were hugely important in doing certain things. Like, like for example, in the book that they talk about was the hunter-gatherer model, mm -hmm. which in fact, the gatherer perspective is how they survived. Hunting was a, a rare thing uh, that because they wouldn't have likely encountered game in the way that they could have kept it fresh or they could have used it. So gathering was really their way of life. Oh, so even just simple things like that, where we see things swapped, even in something so, so small, like it, it geared towards the men again. Nice. So that is pretty much what we got out of the book. Yeah. If I'm 
speaking correctly, I think yeah. that, that there's so much more to this book. It's incredible. I mean, we highly recommend that you read it, but those are the main things that we have. So to just summarize those again quickly, number one, in multiple locations at various times, there are archaeological evidence of peaceful women-centered cultures. Again, that's not the same as matriarchal, that's women-centered cultures. And Eisler calls these societies partnership cultures. So this, the second point to summarize are podcast is that every one of these societies was eventually overtaken by invaders that brought aggression and the institution of social hierarchies. Eisler calls these societies the dominator cultures. And then the final point, Eisler points out that the critical need to involve women in interpreting the, the data, and we're even expanding that more to say, not just women, like we need people generally just at this discussion, LGBTQ, mm-hmm. people of color, et cetera, indigenous people, like we, we need more and more perspective. And we're really seeing that, you know, with this second civil rights movement right now in the United States is we're seeing the need for other voices at the table. That's exactly right. Yeah. Awesome, Malia. That was great. I learned so much. I did too. It's a great book. It really was. 